This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Carberline. Reduce, reuse, recycle, as the saying goes, or what goes around comes around. On today's show, we have two special guests, Dr. Gabrielle Gausted, Associate Professor of Sustainability at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and Dr. Callie Babbitt, also Associate Professor of Sustainability at RIT. And we're going to talk about the circular economy. So, uh, welcome both of you to the show. Thanks so much for having us. We're happy to be here. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. So, you're both backgrounds in sustainability. What are your special areas? Yeah, so um, my uh, PhD is actually in material science, and uh, I focus on materials mainly at their end of life and understanding uh, environmental impact and economic trade-offs, depending on all the paths that they may be taking at their end of life. And hopefully, which we'll get to a little more today, you know, circling that back around to supply and extraction as well. Okay, so Gabrielle's that. Uh, Callie, what's your background? I'm a chemical engineer by training, but working now on environmental impacts of emerging technology. So a lot of cool things coming out, nanotech, biotech, solar energy, consumer electronics, all of those things have potential trade-offs, and our research aims to understand what those potential risks are from an environmental, economic, and social perspective, and then figure out ways to minimize those risks. Gabrielle, I'll start with you. What is the circular economy? This is something I'm completely unfamiliar with. Yeah, it's a great question. It's kind of a new hot buzzword for a lot of the same framework that people approach in sustainability. So the linear economy, so to speak, is this idea of take, make, dispose, kind of this linear path of things. And uh, in the sustainability world, we also sometimes call that cradle to grave. So the extraction phase, through all those life cycle phases, and then in the end, ends up in the landfill in most cases. Right, that's how most of us think that we live. We buy something, it lives in our house for a bit, and then we put it away in the trash. Exactly, exactly. So the idea is to take that linear path and try to make it more circular. A lot of times in the literature, they call that now cradle to cradle. So it's things like reuse, remanufacturing, recycling. But the idea of the circular economy is to really expand beyond that a little more and really start to think about economics and finance. So previously, economic development is very coupled to consumption, resource consumption, materials consumption, uh, even energy, so fossil fuels, those kinds of things. The idea is can we decouple this idea that economic development is linearly happening with all of this consumption as well. So historically, in fact, if you look at developing nations, they can actually track where they are in development by things like how much cement they use in a year. Mm -hmm. So those things have really traditionally been very coupled. And the idea in the circular economy is how to start decoupling that. In the, in the sense of decoupling, are you talking about moving away from manufacturing jobs? No, it's uh, the idea is to build circularity into all of those things. So um, certain things now are becoming more enabling factors to move towards that circular economy. So the fact that the cost of renewables are going down, that might be an enabling factor to say, start using renewable energy instead of only the fossil fuel kind of linear 
energy system. Things like, you know, the internet and smartphones are actually enabling factors for more of a service economy, they call it. So a lot of sharing services, for example. So the fact that everyone is now connected over the the internet of things and the smartphones, uh, that's making it possible for economic things like Uber and Airbnb, things based on sharing and Also, uh, that helps to enable uh, efficiency gains in manufacturing. So additive manufacturing is something that that gets kind of a lot of the spotlight um, as a great example of how manufacturing is starting to fall under the circular economy framework. Can you break down what uh, additive manufacturing is? Probably most people are the most familiar with the 3D printing boom. So uh, being able to actually create something by uh, layering different materials. So, uh, you know, plastics, metals, uh, those are probably the most common things that get manufactured that way. But it's it's a example from this standpoint because people are able to connect they share plans for building things you know there's right. communities to kind of um, build them up there's maker spaces and sharing right. where right. people are able to kind of come together and crowdsource manufacturing <laughs> yeah it, it reminds me of the old uh, commercial about anti-piracy that says you wouldn't download a car and the response was if I could I would <laughs> yes. and that, that's now becoming a reality that's becoming right? a reality now yeah <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so, Callie, I know we've talked about recycling before, particularly with renewable products. Is this economy more than recycling? Recycling is one of the strategies that you can employ in a circular economy, but it may not be the first or the best option. In a circular economy, we want to think about how all different paths of materials and products can be put back into productive use to benefit others. One example that I think we've talked about before is electric vehicles. So for an electric vehicle that is powered on a lithium ion battery, uh, that battery before it ever hits the recycling plant could be reused. It could be used in another vehicle or perhaps it could be used to store solar energy where you have the energy being generated when the sun is shining and then not at nighttime. So that lithium ion battery could have a second or third life in a, a, a different economic structure before it ever gets recycled. Um, So there's a number of different pathways. Another idea here is that the material from one system could be recycled into another one. And this is what we sometimes call waste equals food. A lot of the circular economy is modeled after biological systems where you don't see a lot of waste. Uh, The waste from one organism or or the organism itself becomes the food for another. And so we don't have the same idea of waste in nature. So are there lessons that industry and business can actually learn from, from nature? Whatever the byproducts are, making them available and figuring out what other opportunities there are to use this. Right. And so that's a great opportunity for economic development and innovation. If we do have to, say, burn fossil fuels, what can we do with the ashes and the materials that are left over? Maybe those can actually be converted into a building material so we don't have to produce concrete or or cement itself if you can substitute those materials in. 
So finding ways to couple businesses together um, that actually lead to better economic outcomes for them. So the waste from one industry might become the the food, so to speak, or raw material for another. It saves disposal costs, it saves raw material costs, and it allows for new business opportunities to be created. It reminds me a little bit of, of some of the architecture you might see where they'll use recycled bottles and use those for walls, and then you see the glass with concrete or whatever there as, as kind of a way of building those materials. And in the built environment, you have this extra opportunity to use that not only as a pathway for the material, but also for a learning opportunity for the users. So if you can actually then use a building and a built environment to demonstrate this technology, it educates the people in the space about how, you know, doing a green strategy is not just about the environment, but it's actually about improving their their experience, making a, a more comfortable building and also saving money. So, Gabrielle, when when you're talking about this circular economy, you have the recycling, you're detaching. It sounds like you're detaching the manufacturing from the economy. And, and I could see where that would be terrifying for some people. The companies, of course, are going to want to focus on, I'm sure you've heard this, the triple bottom line, right? So everyone is getting getting a, a good outcome, you get environmentally, profitability, good social impacts. But, you know, of course, the reality of the situation is, you know, not everyone might, you know, have positive outcomes from all those things. So that's that's one of the key focuses of the of the circular economy. So positive things for the firm that can come out of of some of these systems level frameworks. And it really is a systems level framework, right? So it's not, you know, detaching things. It's really trying to take the 3000 foot view and say what's more optimal for everyone instead of all the actors, you know, marginally optimizing on their own systems. Right. So much more of a global aspect of Yeah, to do this. yeah, absolutely. So so one area that I work in is um, you know, steel recycling. I have a project right now in that space and it's really interesting because there's all these different markets that are working together even though they don't know it, right? So so there's the automotive market and when though when your vehicle's done you know there's resale there's a resale market for the parts that are left in there there's a resale market for your hulk that gets smashed <laughs> up at the end and then the steel companies have to work on the steel commodity market which is a global materials market but then all the other things that come out of your car that aren't steel like aluminum and copper and your radiators and there might even be some precious metals there's now tons of electronics in cars mm-hmm. all the plastics so all those things that actually get separated out and each of those are sold on their various commodity markets. So, you know, if you're the steel firm, you're probably not thinking about how all those markets are necessarily working together. You're just looking at your kind of whatever's facing you, which are the prices. Right. So the idea is to take a little bit more of the systems framework raise efficiency for all of the stakeholders and then you get that kind of triple bottom line at the end. You're listening to One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Korberlein, and we're talking with Gabrielle Gusted and Callie Babbitt 
about the circular economy. Kelly, I'm going to be a little bit of a downer here. And, and when I think of the kind of recycling economy, I imagine, you know, here I have my 1970s car with duct tape on it, holding it together with, with old recycled wire I pulled from a toy in order to keep the ignition running or something. It doesn't sound like a very positive view of the world. That is one maybe misconception about some of these sustainability initiatives. We're not talking about getting by with less. We're talking about thriving and flourishing using the resources that we're currently wasting right now. So one example, every time that we turn on a light switch and that power comes off the utility grid, only about 30% of the energy contained in that crude oil or that coal actually gets turned into electricity. There's a huge amount that's wasted. What we're talking about here are opportunities to disrupt the current production system at all points in the product life cycle. How can we actually get more out of the resources we're currently using and then how to reuse them in a, in a productive way? So that's kind of the idea behind this this disruptive innovation festival is coming up with solutions that can actually um, seek out the most inefficient parts of the life cycle and then come up with really compelling, innovative, entrepreneurial business strategies to, to make a more sustainable system. So in many ways, this is in terms of the manufacturing aspect, it's breaking down the barriers. So if I, if I think of a car, for example, I can go to Toyota and I can buy one of four different models and that's it. And you're saying that, that if you have a broader manufacturing base, if you have more innovation, then you could pick and choose? And There's nothing to say that you might not be able to do that in the future. I mean, I think that there's a lot of really cool opportunities and some of this is happening at a very small scale. Um, some of it is about educating consumers and putting the power back to consumers to customize, to design, to take part in their own products and their own sustainability impact. So one great example that I really like to point out is is the company iFixit. Um, They've really put a big effort at trying to get users the ability and the knowledge and the skill set to repair their own electronic products. So part of that is crowdsourcing repair manuals. Mm -hmm. Part of it is educating consumers on which products are the easiest to upgrade and take apart and put back together. Um, And part of it is then putting new tools in the hands of consumers to actually do that kind of repair. We don't have much of a repair culture in the United States anymore because of the linear model that Gabrielle mentioned, sort of own it and throw it away. If we want to actually keep products in use, we're not talking about sort of jerry-rigging and rewiring. We're talking about, can you actually make your product better? Can you Mm -hmm. actually customize it? Can you make it um, where you have a stronger emotional connection to it because you've taken part in its recycle and, and repair? And then, and by doing so, extend its life a little bit longer and keep it out of the landfill. I could also imagine something like, even if you're not part of the maker economy, other people might be part of that. So a plumber, for example, that could download, well, I need any part I need, well, here's a little plastic piece for a washer. I go on, get the schematic, print it. It doesn't have to be shipped. This has opened up a lot of new opportunities in the design space. So when we're looking at designing a new product, we might be able to quickly prototype a a widget or a piece or even sort of a shell of it and give it to someone and say, touch this, feel this. How does it work? Give us some immediate user feedback um, and and 
instead of trying to machine a complicated part, we can quickly prototype a, a, a trial piece and, and see if it actually works. So this has really sped up the innovation cycle um, to a large degree. And it's not just about sustainability. This is also creating a lot of social innovation as well. So mm-hmm. allowing people to create some of these business opportunities for themselves. It's about improving quality of life. So not uh, doing doing well or getting by with less, but doing better with less. So Gabrielle, in terms in terms of the economy, I think that one of the other things that you see in the in the movement is what's sometimes referred to as the gig economy. You brought up something like Uber, where people do their own work for hire. Absolutely. That has a lot of benefits in terms of efficiency. People love using Uber, and Mm. people love making some spare cash on the side. Right. But, of course, there's other people who look at this as, as saying, well, but now you have a company that's the largest taxi company in the world that owns no taxis. And Facebook, for example, is this multi-billion dollar company that has very few employees. And people wonder, is this, is this a leading to the collapse of an economy? How do we do this? Yeah, a lot of the sharing services, you know, leasing models can, can definitely scare people. <laughs> people are afraid about job security and, you know, the more technological some of these disruptive innovations are, sometimes the more scared people can be as well. Mm-hmm. You know, people are afraid of being replaced by robots. You know, you see <laughs> see a lot of that um, right. in the mainstream uh, media now. And so there's, there's obviously a lot of fear there. But again, to kind of echo some of the things that Callie said, it's really about doing things better <laughs> for mm-hmm. all of us, right? We're not trying to squeeze blood from a rock. We're trying to... Uh, find efficiency where there's already a lot of inefficiencies in place, right? right? So right. so the, the idea behind the circular economy movement is more, uh, the motivation is about the fact that materials and energy are actually no longer cheap and easily accessible, right? right. So the, the fact is we, we have to start changing to deal with that. Consumers, workers, firms are being negatively impacted by the fact of that, right? So prices are going up for things, it's harder to get things. But this, that's where some of this innovation is very helpful. So I also do some work in the uh, the supply chain, looking at supply chains, right? Because if you want to increase that circularity, uh, you have to know where you're going to send those things at the right. end of life back back into the supply chain. And so some of the things we've been talking about in terms of customization, that's really great for firms, too, in their supply chains. Firms don't want to make things to stock. They mm-hmm. love to be able to make things to order because right. that's going to save them money. It's going to make their customers happier. Right. That's one of those great examples where it's kind of a win-win for either side. And it sounds like you know a lot of these disruption things, you get both sides in that sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, Uber is a great example because you have the established taxi system that, that is seeing an impact. And, yeah. and so they see the negatives of it. And then you see the people who are signing on to Uber and using Uber and they like it for, for a faster response or it's more affordable or something like this. There's always going to be that kind of two side. But what it forces people to do are the ones who are feeling the negative impact have to innovate to keep up. It's rewarding to folks 
in that system that can be more flexible, more responsive, the ones who are willing to kind of become better, better optimize themselves, um, where you see, you know, really interesting things happen. So on the supply chain side, you know, I look a lot at critical and strategic materials. So things that can be hard to get, you know, rare earth metals mm -hmm. are one that, you know, we hear a lot about lately. And of course, you know, firms are very scared about not being able to get their materials. But what happens when there's a disruption in the supply chain is actually those firms are the ones who do the coolest stuff. They come up with the most innovative things. They are forced to actually substitute new materials that might actually be better, have better environmental impacts, better actual performance. They're forced to find efficiencies in their own process that they need to take advantage of. Right. Even though there are some negative impacts, that negative push can actually really force a lot of innovation in those markets. Right, when, you, when you're on the edge of a cliff, you start thinking creatively very quickly. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm Brian Kerberlein, you're listening to One Universe at a Time, and we're talking about circularity and the circular economy with Gabrielle Gausted and Callie Babbitt. They're gonna ask me questions about this and I'll see if I can answer them. One of the things that, that is really fascinating to me about the circular economy is the, the area of biomimicry. So the idea that we can look at design innovations and inspirations from the natural world and use those to design cool new products. Like one example is um, looking at the really uh, elongated cone-shaped beak of the, the kingfisher that enables it to, to dive sound into water to, to catch fish and maybe using that model to design a bullet train that can dive through underground tunnels without creating a lot of noise. So there's a lot of cool ideas about biomimicry in circular economy. So I'm guessing that there's probably some other examples of, of circularity or circular economy, so to speak, in the physical world. And we'd love to hear from you about inspirations we might be able to take from natural systems. You talk about biomimicry and, uh, you know, it's one of the jokes about evolution in that it's the most horribly efficient, wonderful engineer there is. <laughs> because if you can find a solution, evolution tends to do that. It may not be the best solution, but it is a solution to a problem. And it's, it's kind of a recurring theme in the physical sciences in the sense that the universe seems to be extraordinarily efficient in terms of what it does. If it can do something with less energy, it will. Uh, one of the fundamental principles in physics is this kind of minimal energy principle. And, and the path of a baseball, for example, is the path that takes a, a minimum of energy and time in that sense. And so you see this over and over again in that whatever anything can do to reduce the amount of energy or be more efficient, it will tend to in nature. Let me ask you, though, about the time scales, because, you know, we don't have a lot of time, so to speak, to solve some of the current sustainability problems like climate change or drought or pollution. What are the timescales that this natural optimization happen in in physical sense? The universe isn't necessarily efficient with its time, so it's took it's taken billions of years to get where we are. But that doesn't mean that we can't take advantage of it because we're looking at it from the outside in. So we know what some of the underlying principles are. Nature 
assumably doesn't know what those underlying principles are. It does what it does. And so if we can look at wh- wh- how nature does what it does and why nature does what it does, we can take advantage of that. Uh, one example would be using computational evolution to solve problems. So if you want a design, you can write code that will randomly try different things and then whatever works minimally kind of computer breed those to create offspring that are similar and keep doing this in an iterative process. And they've done this in engineering to solve several problems. You see this with neural networks, for example. You see this with, uh, you know, some self-walking machines that you try and build a walk cycle. You can do this using evolutionary principles. It doesn't take billions of years because it's on a computer. That's a great example. We have a colleague who applies these genetic algorithms to optimize the power grid. So it's an interesting um, example or takeaway. Yeah, that's a perfect example of how we can use that. Are there any other cool examples of recycling in in on Earth or in space that, that we could look at? Well, I, I mean, one of the things that is you know, almost become a truism at this point is that we're made of star stuff. And, you know, the universe recycles everything in that sense. You know, stars that, that consume and die uh, explode. They become new stars and planetary systems and so forth. And in fact, it's not just that, that we're built from the material of other stars, but that the transformation of its use actually becomes central to what we are and, and how we're made because the iron in our bodies and the carbon in our bodies come from the fusion of stars. Stars have to use and consume hydrogen in order to that to be produced. So it's not just that, oh, we're made of star stuff. It's that we're made of the waste of stars, what became detrimental at the end because there wasn't enough hydrogen. that It used up everything that could be used then became an explosion, and what was waste for the star becomes central to life on Earth. We need carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, and the only way it's made is by the byproducts of stars. So it's a real, it's a lesson in that recycling, and that it's not just simply moving things in a circle forever and ever, but actually taking advantage of the transformation of the material as it goes along. That's a really good example, and I and I think it really attests to the to the need to sort of design in circularity in the industrial sense. You know, most of the uh, reuse and reuse recycle projects that we see now are less than optimal because it's a product being used for something it wasn't designed for or a material that's been somehow downgraded in the recycling. If instead we look at it at, from the beginning in the way that, that, that you mentioned and say, how can we actually design this material to perform optimally? So how do we make these secondary uses um, reliant on the, the generation of the waste material to start with? And there's, I think, a lot of great examples of that in, in waste to energy, even in industrial sense, using food waste, for example, as, as mm-hmm. an energy source. So a lot of the circular economy principles we've been talking about rely on disruptive innovation. And that's actually the, uh, the theme for this, think differently or think diff um, for the circular economy. What are some of the disruptive innovations in in the physics domain and, and in astronomy that we can look at as technological models for inspiration? I think probably the, the biggest disruption that you see now in astronomy and physics would be the rise of what we would call big data. So, the, so when you have, say, for example, a telescope that's doing a sky survey, you'll get terabytes or 
petabytes of data that's just constantly downloaded. And and most of these tools in terms of, you know, big physics and big astronomy, they're gathering massive amounts of data. The interesting thing that astronomy does, at least, is they put this out on the public domain. So it becomes accessible to everyone. And that's actually part of the model that's that's transforming in astronomy is to actually put more and more of this data out there. And one of the things that we found is even though you're gathering data for a particular purpose, if you put the data out there, someone will take advantage of that data to do something innovative. So if you're doing an infrared sky survey because you want to find asteroids, you put the data out there and someone says, well, wait a minute, with infrared astronomy, I can find out where black holes are. So they can study black holes from the same data that you were using to look at asteroids. Because the data is there, there's almost no cost to put it out there in the public domain. You talk about living in a um, material rare uh, environment where the, the supply chain gets more and more narrow. In some sense, it's the opposite of that with information. The information is becoming more plentiful and more bountiful and more easy to access and analyze. And I think that's something that can really uh, affect how we do things. The more efficiently we can gather information, the more we can take advantage of that, of the more opportunities we have to, to find innovation. That's a great example, and I think a lesson that we can learn from astronomy. You know, in an industrial sense, we have a a real protective sense around data, proprietary patents, um, technological and trade secrets. Um, but maybe for us to really enable the circular economy, it will take this more open attitude towards sharing sharing data. We've been talking with Gabrielle Gausted, Associate Professor of Sustainability at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and Dr. Callie Babbitt, Associate Professor of Sustainability at RIT, about the circular economy. Our program is produced by Mark Gillespie at the Rochester Institute of Technology with support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Korberlein. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time.